dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. When most people speak about leadership today, they mean it in the context of business. And there are ample examples of great leadership in the world of business and ample examples of Catholics who have typified that same leadership in business. But I'd like to focus us today on a reflection of a great saint who was not a business leader, but in fact, the Pope, Pope St. John Paul II, and see how his life teaches us about Catholic leadership. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. I am going to talk to you about a saint that I'm rather passionate about personally, and I suppose many of you are too, and that's Pope St. John Paul II. Maybe it's because he was the Pope for the majority of my life, and he was a Pope that inspired me personally to follow Christ as a priest, um, amongst many other, I mean, many other things that he did. And his life, therefore, has always enthralled me. And it's a real privilege for me to be able to share him with you, not just as Pope, not just as priest, not just as son of the Virgin Mary, but as an incredible example of leadership. And so let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, Father of the poor, illumine the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Help us, Holy Spirit, to learn what you want us to learn and to follow the voice of God in all that we do. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the life of St. John Paul II is just epic. It's epic in so many ways. I mean, he's the most traveled pope in history. Uh, on average, it would be 10% of his time was spent outside of the Vatican. I mean, that's incredible. He was the Pope for 26 years. Uh, he wrote all kinds of encyclicals and apostolic exhortations. There were so many firsts that he did. The first Pope to enter a synagogue, you know, the first Pope to reach out to the world of Islam the way that he did. Uh, he prepared the church for the coming of the third millennium. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, historically acclaimed as the one who brought about the, the downfall of communism, or at least one of the, the bigger ones. Uh, it, you know, when you look at all of that, you say, oh, goodness, well, that's just, you get lost in the accolades. And I think that you can too easily forget that that magnificence of soul and that incredibly epic life actually came from a very simple center. And to me, when I look at the life of John Paul II, I see a man who always operated out of that center and who didn't allow himself in his leadership to, he typifies for us the fact that greatness comes from focus 
and comes from simple density of character. And this is what I really want to focus us in on as we, as we look at his life together. Okay. Because when I had the opportunity, when I took a pilgrimage with Eagle Eye Ministries to visit, uh, to visit Poland and to thank God for the life of St. John Paul II and his role in my own priestly ministry. And we were able to visit the room where he was born. I don't know if you realize this, but John Paul II's apartment where he grew up with his father, it, I mean, I have not been in many apartments that are smaller. Let's put it that way. Uh, it certainly wasn't poverty, uh, but at the same time, it was not grandiose at all. It consisted of like a main kind of sitting room slash living room area, which hosted even a, a, a sewing machine where his dad would sew his clothes for John, for John Paul II as a boy from his old military uniforms. Okay, so like the sewing machine is right there in the sitting room, which has a couch and a couple of chairs. And then you have a bedroom big enough just for two beds, one for his father, one for him. And then the kitchen area, the bathroom, for example, he would have shared with the other people who lived on his apartment block floor. It's, it's really incredible to think about that. The greatest man of the 20th century who did all of these incredible things, he came from an environment that was extremely simple. And many of us wouldn't even want to live there today. We'd say, no, that's, that's not enough for me to live a great life. Let's always remember that. The, the simplicity of his up. You know, when, when he was young, he lost his mom. She passed away. And she passed away from being a week of health. And many people have made a link between the actual uh, birth of John Paul II and the deterioration of his mother's health. She'd already lost a girl before he was even born. His brother was to die um, a little bit you know, later on in his life. His father was to die when he's about 19. So by the time he's 20 years old, he was a complete orphan in this world, living, of course, in an oppressed regime. The, commu the, the communists had taken over in, in place of the Nazis. But, so he's, he went to school under Nazi uh, of supervision. So he was constantly, you know, at night studying in, in, on the sly so he wouldn't get caught. And then, of course, the Nazis were replaced by the, the communists. And, and he had everything that you would look at in your life saying, there's no way that anything great could come from this. There's no way. There's just too many obstacles. I mean, his mom dies. His dad dies. His brother dies. He's in an oppressed situation. I mean, the Nazis, they were terrible to the Poles. When you go look, look back at the things that happened, think of the massacres that, uh, of the Polish intelligentsia, his own teachers, his university was shut down. He was working in a chemist, chemical factory and in a quarry, a limestone quarry. I mean, this is during the, the time when he's studying for the priesthood. The other workers would hide him behind different spots so that he could read his books and he'd make his way to, to the seminary, on, you know, uh, in secret. I mean, there's just so many just aspects of his life that when you look at it, you would say nothing great could come from here. And how many people of his, of his time, how many of his contemporaries chose not to do anything great with their lives under the pretext of all of the difficulties that, that w was befalling their country? So what was his secret? Why did John Paul II achieve so much and soar to such heights when in fact others around him didn't you could look at the the role of the father in his life he had an amazing dad 
Uh, he, he, who used to sew his clothes for him, who had to rear his children without a wife. And, and John Paul II said the first time that he ever thought about being a priest was when he would open his eyes early in the morning and see his dad kneeling and saying his prayers in the, in the early morning. Right? So the, the role of the father in, in, in John Paul II's life is huge. And, and yet at the same time, there's something else. And that's what I want to look at with you today. John Paul II had a center in his soul, a type of dense place of identity where he, which was almost inexhaustible in terms of its potentialities. And he would spend the rest of his life going back to that center in order to bring forth solutions, ideas, and, and, and direction for this world. And that's what I want to look at with you. What was that center? Father Nathan is producing an ongoing source of videos to form, unite, and inspire you and your family. Go to eagleeyeministries.org. That's E-A-G-L-E-E-Y-E ministries.org. And subscribe to Eagle Eye Pro. Subscribe today. You know, at the center of all great leadership, there lies this mystery of the heart. And this series in particular, where I'm looking at courageous leadership, it needs to focus in on what that means exactly in terms of heart, right? How do I form heart in a person? And in myself, how do I get in touch with my heart and protect my heart and build up my heart? I mean, if you really think about it, all great leadership depends upon the skill and the tact and the spirit within the leader. The more that I'm in touch with that and the more that I feed that in myself, the more dynamic my leadership is going to be. The thing I need to be most protective of in my life as a leader is who gets into my heart, who dictates my heart and the quality of the spirit that's in my heart. If I have heart, I can overcome anything. Right? The, the, the greatest acid that eats away the strength of our leadership isn't the threats around us. It's the lack of confidence that comes within us. Not just confidence, but the lack of belief, the lack of certitude, the lack of sense of self. And when I look at Pope John Paul II, I see a man who excelled in that spirit. He was constantly one to have heart. And where did it come from? Number one, profound sense of his roots. Pope John Paul II, he loved his Polish identity. He loved everything about his country. He said, I wanted to always be a priest of Poland for Poland. And he never lost sight of that. When you look back at the different speeches and homilies that he gave as Pope and his various visits to Poland, they're so rousing precisely because of their sense of identity. Remember, as a young man, he studied languages and he was especially interested in his native Polish language uh, and, and looking at all of the history of his people, the playwrights, the poets. He was himself a playwright, himself a poet, and in, inscribing himself in the, the vein of an understanding of the power of Polish to express truth in a unique way. Almost the link between language and culture. 
That's really where his passion lie. That's where, I mean, so you think, oh goodness, well, what is that all about? I tell you, it's about giving yourself identity and roots. In order to take people anywhere, you have to have a starting point, right? And see, so what's that starting point inside of each one of you? Do you feel like you belong to an, uh, uh, an identity that's bigger than you? There's almost like a link between a sense of rootedness in history and an idealism that springs wings and pushes us forward. The more a person belongs to something bigger than them, the freer their heart is in order to aspire to continue that legacy and to find their own trajectory within it. This is something really fundamental I want you to think about because we live in a world today and especially in America today where that's not really celebrated. It's almost like our roots have to be taken up. We have to reconsider them, be ashamed of who we are and be ashamed of our background. And I'm not here to say that we, we shouldn't be ashamed of elements of our background or that we shouldn't correct things about our history that are inglorious or even wrong. But it would be equally wrong to deny any kind of enrootedness in that identity of your culture and your, or your people. And again, like it might not, America is a little bit more of a vacuous entity than Poland when it comes to that, because we're a country that was brought together out of many, a pluribus unum. But at the same time, like you can choose whatever that is, your own family heritage, for example, or the, the area of the country that you come from, or even the, the, the trade that you practice that was handed on to you and that you've stepped into and that you've learned. Whatever community that you ascribe to is essential to forming that center out of which you will lead. Many of us ignore this first step. And that's why we have such a hard time generating new ideas or pushing the envelope in any direction. No, we're all just in this check in the box. I'm going to do what everyone around me does. Why? Because I don't belong to anything except whatever we're doing together. Well, guys, that, that's, you're not going to be able to lead forward unless you have a reference point in any circumstance, any condition that's bigger and more determining than the circumstance that you're in. In other words, if I come in to lead you and give this talk to you all today, I come in as a Catholic priest. I come in as an American. I come in as a, a person who studied and has, you know, acquired a certain amount of background of intelligence. And I'm bringing those three things to you in order to make your world better. That's going to enable me to lead when I give this talk and it's going to, it, what, well, what's your context? And do you really ascribe yourself and put yourself into that? The more that you absorb that identity, the more that you're able to bring the riches of that heritage to bear on the circumstances in front of you. And for Pope John Paul II, he, he, li he lived this. His courageous leadership was constantly going back to, to the traditions of his people. Yes, even secular traditions but especially in their Catholic identity. I think, for example, when he was bishop, he began to, to take part against the communist regime and the annual pilgrimages to Our Lady, the Jasna Gora in Czestochowa. It used to be that the Polish people would come from every city across the country on foot 
to arrive on August 15th there in Shestahova where they would, you know, reconsecrate their nation to Our Lady, etc. And it was like a thing that people would do. Well, John Paul II revived it under the communist regime. And he, was, he would have the people hold up this big, you know, icon of Our Lady, uh, like a painting of Our Lady, and, and march down the streets. And then people were seeing what was happening. They would join. Well, one day the, the communists didn't like this very much, so they actually stole the picture, thinking if we steal the picture, well, then, like, the, the whole thing will fall apart. And so John Paul II picked up the empty frame of the picture and hoisted that over his head and continued to walk with an empty frame. And the people, of course, rallied around him and he moved forward, right? It's just like a nice little anecdote because what he was giving to the people was the sense that their own identity was one and the same with their faith. That you couldn't forge a Poland outside of the faith. And this was, and therefore if they were to reclaim their, their Poland and their freedom, it would come by reclaiming their faith. So Jean-Paul II, by that angle, will let a revolution without firing a bullet. And, and I, beyond the circumstances of him doing that, it's an incredible lesson for our own leadership to ask ourselves, do I, do I have an identity that's bigger than myself? Do I belong to anyone that I serve? Well, obviously here, as Christians, we serve Christ. And that identity of Christ in this world ought to allow us to be stronger than our own vicissitudes it ought to be able, enable us to be more courageous than our own fears. We're here at the service of something greater, and we want to bring that someone greater into the world in front of us, just like John Paul II did. Father Nathan has founded the St. John Institute, the MBA program that develops students into the leaders of tomorrow by giving them a missionary's heart and an entrepreneur's mind. Visit our website at stjohninstitute.org. Dare great things for Christ. I want us to go together with Pope John Paul II at the beginning of the year 2000. This was a date that really represented for him a, a goal of his ministry. His mentor, Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, had actually told him when he became Pope that he needed to bring the church to the third millennium of Christianity. And when you bring this church to the third millennium, I mean, what do you find? Vocations on the decrease, unity amongst the bishops, you know, at, at a low, priestly scandals all waiting in the wings to emerge, confusion in the air around Vatican II. You find a liturgy that's not respected in many ways. You could make a whole litany of problems and errors and difficulties, reasons to not have hope. And when John Paul II brings the church to the third millennium, he writes a letter that's incredible, Tertio Millennio Inuente. It's incredible because he begins the letter by saying, on the dawn of this third millennium, the church hears the voice of Christ ring out once again as they did to Simon Peter. Put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. <laughs> it's incredible. Here you have an example of a visionary leadership for all of us. You have the, the ability for Pope John Paul II to look and survey 
a world that in many ways you could just say is despairing. And you see this happen. You see people today talking all the time about, oh, it's never going to be the same. We're never going to recover anything again. You know, democracy is fading away. Our, our, our civil liberties are going, you know, and, and maybe they are. Maybe, you know, that's not really my point. Well, my, my point is to say, if they are, what are you going to do about it, right? Like, we need some positive thinking here, too. It's so much easier to cast a voice of skepticism and criticism at our world. It's so much easier to do that than to innovate a creative and effective response. And when John Paul II was Pope, he was well aware of all of the difficulties that were there. We can think of his valiant opposition to abortion and euthanasia. His valiant opposition to contraception and artificial ways of reproduction. His valiant opposition to the, the usage of children's slaves or the impoverishment of the third world. You could keep going. I mean, he had no problem about criticism. But what was so unique about him was that he didn't stop at that criticism. He enabled, he, he was enabled by God and he chose as a leader to be a voice of hope. If you remember the very first thing he said when he was elected Pope, he came out, of course, onto the balcony and he looked out of the world. They gave him a microphone, which normally they don't do. Normally the Popes up until that time, they never said anything. They would just wave and then go back and their first pronouncement would be at the mass when they were crowned Pope or whatever. And instead he gets a microphone and he says to the world, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Right? It's, a, it's a word that just echoes and it's kind of the theme of his whole pontificate. In the midst of all of this trouble, John Paul II was rooted in someone greater than him. His identity wasn't just forged by his roots. It was also forged by the one in whom he had placed his hope. He was strong by the, the he became a courageous leader and was strong by the heritage that he inherited from the past. And he was especially strong by the one that he was looking towards, Jesus Christ, his Savior. I mean, you say, John Paul II, how can I not be afraid? Look at everything that's around me. And he would look at us again and say, be not afraid. The one who is in you is bigger than the ones that are around you. Trust in Jesus. Hide in Jesus. And he did that. I mean, there's, the stories abound of John Paul II in his prayer life. He, you know, priests that would pray the mass with him would find him. They'd be led into the chapel where he was already there on his kneeler. He'd make a holy hour before every mass. And during that hour, they would, they would say, you know, you could hear sighs coming from him, almost like a type of groaning in his prayer as he lifted up the world. Uh, there was another time where after he was ordained pope, they were, they were looking for him and they couldn't find him. And the secretary was nervous, saying, well, where is he? He's going to be late. And then they said, look in the chapel. And he said, I looked in the chapel. He's not there. He said, look again. And they went back to the chapel, and they found he didn't see him the first time because John Paul II was laying flat on the floor, his arms out in the shape of a cross, prostrated. His, his eyes were on God. And, you know, it, a lot of times the solutions to the problems that are being put forth in our world today are being put forth by leaders who aren't leading in that optic of God. You know, okay, let's create a brave new world. You know, why don't we just reinvent everything from the ground up without experimentation, without research? We don't have time for that. We're just going to plunge forward into solutions that we think are good. And you just look around, you, you can understand why Aquinas used to say that a democracy will, will lead to tyranny 
more easily than any other form of government. Because when you have a democratic form of government, eventually someone just can easily rise and take over that democracy by any idea. There's nothing to ground it in something bigger than itself. Now, leaving that at, you know, to wherever it is, it's just very interesting because you could look around and say, well, that, there's all kinds of leaders vying for that democracy. I like to say this all the time, that your families, they're being led by somebody. If it's not you, it's somebody else who wants to. I mean, we live in a democracy and whoever's going to pick up that microphone is going to pick it up and is going to win with it. I want that person to be you. I want the person leading your home to be you, leading your business to be you. Why? Because you belong to Christ. And when you operate as his agents, through your leadership and through your skills and through your innovation, Jesus Christ can shine his light in this world. But what does that require from you? It requires that your eyes be on God and that you allow yourself to dare that greatness to govern this world in his stead. And it's obviously not without him, but it is with him. I mean, could you imagine trying to take into your leadership today in your workplace the optic that I am an instrument of God? What does God want to be done in this workplace? I mean, not only will your self-esteem take a good, you know, rise, but also you won't allow yourself to be overcome by the fears and anxieties and worries and complaints of a world that's smaller than you when you are in God. He holds the whole world in his hands. And Pope John Paul II's courageous leadership was one that came from having himself grounded in God. And that's what enabled him to be so bold. To ring out at the dawn of the third millennium that now is the time for the new evangelization. I mean, that takes an audacious hope. And I'll be, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of folks in the church today have not followed in that footsteps. They don't dare to hope that much. And a lot of us walking around, we don't, whenever there's hope in someone's heart, there's also the possibility for effective change. Wherever there's hope in someone's heart, there's freedom. And wherever there's freedom, there's an impossibility to be mastered by anyone else. And that's the audacity that changes this world, changes our family, changes our schools, changes our society. We change the world around us because we're confident that that change doesn't come from us but comes from another one who is greater than us, who, to whom this world owes its homage. We become the humble servants of a truth that commands us to hope and of a vision that does not give in to any sorts of failures or evil or compromise, a vision that's always for the best. And that's what John Paul II did, lived, and gave to us. True, truly courageous leadership by being enrooted in his past and his eyes on a beautiful future the presence and the truth of God. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.